All right, welcome to episode number 21. I am with the great Rob Mulligan. Rob is ranked number eighth all time for the advanced training PowerPoints with a, with a number of 1.185, a 1.185. The other awesome thing about Rob is that he holds the deadlift record of 545 pounds raw, which he set in 2012. Rob, how are you? Pretty good, Coach. Thanks for having me on. Uh, look forward to catching up. Yes. Yeah, so listen, I got, I got to start this off. There is a rumor that you had purchased your own Prowler and you had your girlfriend using the Prowler. Can you can you tell us that story? Yeah, sure. Actually, it's uh, even more interesting than that. So uh, I just started dating my girlfriend, uh, who is now my wife, around uh, 2010, 2011. And for my uh, first birthday uh, with her, she decided to buy me a Prowler. So she actually bought the Prowler. And uh, I knew right there, then and there, I, I might have something here. And uh, little did she know, it was uh, the start of a uh, very expensive uh, habit of mine of uh, gym equipment. So, uh, yeah, she was a willing, uh, willing participant in the Prowler pushes. So <laughs> how did she know that you wanted a Prowler? What, what drove her to get you one? Um, you know, I, I talk about, you know, things I like to do and, and you know, my, my love of like lifting and strength and conditioning. And uh, uh, she thought it was a good idea. And it was. So uh, <laughs> who am I to argue? So I, I got to take this back to 2011. You're in the 2011 Tough Man, which was brutal, and you tapped out. Then you come back in 2012, and you, you, you come in second. So let me ask you this before we get into the Tough Man itself. Did she buy you that Prowler between 2011 and 2012? Uh, yeah, yes, actually, yeah. <clears throat> was it, it – did helped, she buy it, it to help you in, <laughs> increase your results? Yeah, well, I'd be lying if I said, you know, I, I you know, I'm pretty competitive, and uh, you know, that first, uh, that first stuff, man, uh, was brutal, as you said, and uh, you know, I, I think I, I literally couldn't stand after one of the events, and uh, <laughs> I couldn't answer the bell. So, you know, it's it's all about, you know, conditioning is very specific. So, yeah, I think the the prowler um, might have had something to do with the next tough man. So I, I can't confirm or deny, but, uh, you know, knowing how I dwell on things that, that could have came up in conversation. <laughs> so, so let's just backtrack a little bit. It's 2011. It, it's an insane tough man competition. We had four kids tap out. They could not finish. You were one of those four. We had one guy, he was disqualified because he didn't quit, but he took so long. We actually had to pull him out of the drill the next year, 2012. We have an insane amount of people in the tough man and you come back and finish in second. What changed in your training from 2011 to 2012? What'd you do? Well, for one, I just, you know, decided to dedicate a lot more of my, my training to be specific to the, the tasks at hand, um, you know, actually practice some of the events and, and kind of game plan a bit versus just jumping into something that I frankly was not prepared for in, in the slightest, uh, wasn't exactly training regularly. You know, I was, I was, uh, sort of living in New Jersey at the time, kind of going back and forth between, uh, New York, New Jersey. Um, so yeah, I just, you know, more consistency, more, more dedicated, uh, specific focus. And it's amazing what a little bit of, a uh, you know, game planning can, can do. <laughs> and, and is it also true that you and uh, your brother, Sean Mulligan had used the prowler on pavement in front of your house? Uh, yes, it is very true. I don't think the neighbors were very appreciative of that, but yeah, that's where we did it. We, we actually were very fortunate to grow up on a very uh, wide street. I, I'm still jealous of this to this day that my current street is, is a one way and, and very narrow. I can't, I can't prowl out there. Uh, I'll get hit by a car, but where I grew up, it was like, it should have not been one street. It probably should have been two. So we were always very safe of just pushing it back and forth and not really worried about a car killing us. So very, uh, very advantageous. So the guys I train with, myself included, we are, we are constantly analyzing the, I'll say the, the ground on which that prowler, the surface on which the prowler is being moved. So wherever we're measuring the moisture on the turf, uh, did it rain the night before? Did it rain too much? In your opinion, how does it feel working on pavement as opposed to, say, uh, Bloomingdale Park? Oh, it's night and day. Uh, the pavement is brutal, especially if there's a little, little bit of an incline, which, you know, it's a street, so it's not going to be perfectly flat. Uh, you hit a pebble, you might just like completely be jarred, stop in your, in your tracks there. Uh, I'd say ranking the services of the three I, I've tried it on, one being pavement, two being uh, just turf, and three being grass. Uh, pavement's definitely the hardest. Grass is actually pretty brutal, too, if you're using the the classic three ski prowler, which is, I know that's my model. I'm pretty sure that's the one you, you have yep, yep. Um, versus may, maybe more flat, like a more modern looking sled. Uh, but then 
the turf is definitely the easiest uh, moisture or not. It's just, once you get going, it sort of just kind of keeps moving. So it, it's just hard getting started. Whereas the prowler on the, on the pavement, sometimes you just stop in the middle and just like, I can't push it anymore. It's just, it's brutal. So now you said that you have an expensive habit of buying gym equipment. You sent me a picture last week of the, the, the garage gym that you've built, which looks insane. Uh, what, where do you stop? It looks like you had every piece of equipment known to man in there. What do you, how do you know what to buy? And has your wife told you to, Hey, pump the brakes a little bit. Like, you actually slow down. <laughs> well, uh, I've definitely been told to pump the brakes, but it, it's sort of uh, one of those things where, you know, you, you see something and, and you look, you're like, you know, that would be, that would look great in my gym. Uh, I mean, I, I definitely didn't start with all this stuff, but you know, I always, it was always sort of a, a dream of mine, you know, because, you know, training is important to me and life does get in the way and it makes harder sometimes to go to the gym. Sometimes you're working late or, you know, things are just busy. And you know what I, I thought it would be great. I think it was one time, you know, in high school, my dad got me uh, like a bench press set in, uh, and I had it in my basement. And it was, uh, I don't know, in our, in our high school, it was kind of weird that they just closed the gym. It's like they didn't want us to be good at weightlifting and, and football. <laughs> kind of a side note there. But um, so they would just close it for the two weeks that were off. And, um, you know, you can't really go there and work out. So, Oh, Oh, now I have a set downstairs. And it was just so such a great feeling of, you know, I could do this on demand whenever I want. I don't have to wait for anyone, no equipment, no one's curling in the squat rack or doing anything stupid. So, you know, it was sort of a back of my head, you know, I always kind of wanted something like that. So then when we, um, when I, um, was living at my parents' house, I, I kind of made a deal with my dad. I said, you know what? Well, I'll clean out your garage, right? And, and it hasn't been cleaned out in a very long time. If you allow me to buy a, a set of squat stands, uh, you know, pretty inexpensive, uh, you know, pretty, pretty compared to what I have now, it's pretty, pretty basic. So, you know, he said, okay, fine. And he, I don't think he really believed I could do it. So we, we took a couple of weekends, cleaned out the whole thing. I built a weightlifting platform so I could drop weights on and I bought the squat stands. But then, um, so that's where it started. Just, just, you know, simple. Uh, sometimes lifting in my, my backyard, I ruined my grass. Uh, my dad wasn't very about that, you know, I think for my, uh, my engagement party, which we had in my, in my backyard, he had to like fill in the ditches and yeah, so I, I caused a little work, but, um, but now my house, I'm fortunate to have a, a detached garage that, um, has a, a very high ceiling. So I have a set of rings, a, a whole power rack, pull up bar, uh, a football bar, a powerlifting bar a weightlifting bar a yoke bar a trap bar um i built my own platform built my own weightlifting blocks i bought a bunch of stuff off craigslist i have a glued ham developer uh, an assault bike yeah i'm pretty pretty well equipped here and uh, you know little by little each year you know you get something you trade up you, you sell something on craigslist or, or facebook and you know it's it's like a, a process and uh it took a long time but I'm, I'm very happy with what i have here and uh it just it doesn't give you any excuses you know it's like there's no excuse there's no reason i can't just wake up go get what i have to do go on without my you know go on my day and you know take on any other challenge and you start your day off on the right foot so that that's very important to me now, do you have a, a crew of people that train in there? Does, does Sean come over and lift with you, or is this something you're just doing on your own? Um, so I do have people irregularly coming by. Sean, when he was uh, – Sean, my brother, he, um, he's in the fire department now, so he's, he's pretty uh, busy and, and off, uh, off schedule. But, you know, when he was living a little closer to home, he's in Brooklyn now, yeah, he'd come here every day, and we, we get after it. It's good to have – you know, that's one of the few things I do miss about training in a, a gym setting – you know, atmosphere, it's not the same. I mean, luckily I'm pretty self-motivated, but like, you know, it's, it's just not the same w w when you're not training with a group of people and, or, you know, have other like benchmarks in front of you to look at. But I think it's good to develop your own sense of uh, drive to just get things done too. But yeah. Just some quick recognition of Sean Mulligan, 2010 uh, challenge winner. Have to give him a little bit of a shout out here so people can put this into perspective, how <laughs> powerful the Mulligan brothers are as, as, as a team. All right. So, I guess you had mentioned something about a football bar. What is a football bar? What is that? A uh, football bar. So that's basically a, a general term for any sort of multi-grip bar. Typically, it's it's um, it's almost like so you can neutral grip bench press. Uh, it also has a, a couple of widths, uh, varying levels of, of length, so that you know you also have the, the middle bars are sort of angled to kind of mimic, uh, I guess, a blocking blocking position. Um, and it's just, just, it's a good thing to, you know, spare your shoulders. If you're bench pressing a lot with a straight bar every now and then switch up and, um, just throw it in a little bit, uh, different. It's almost, it basically mimics like neutral grip dumbbell press, um, just with the barbell, which means you could probably load it up a little better, a little more stability. 
Cool. That sounds very cool. So I, I'm thinking for guys that we train who still have these, they're still playing. It's a, it's a nice little tool to have in your toolkit. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So I, I want you to, to, well, first I want to get to what made you, what was inside of you to make you want to train? So just so people know that, you know, you're, you're one of, you were in the, one of the first groups of advanced training. I'd say you were in the very, very early years of when this thing started and you were a guy who you were there in the days when we get, we were thrown out of multiple gyms and there were a lot of times when we had a, we were, we were stuck and we didn't have a place to train. What gave you that drive to say, I need to keep doing this, even if the school's closed for two weeks or if a uh, dolphin says you can't do this in here anymore or our gym didn't open up in the morning, a couple of mornings. What made you have this drive? Did it come from your family? Was it something ingrained in you? What, what was it? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So I'd say just, you know, we'll backtrack now. It's sort of just self-motivating. I do it because I really like to. Uh, obviously, I don't think people generally are born that way, you know, especially when it involves pain and, you know, injury and heavy weight and stuff. So, you know, I, I think it goes back, you know, I, I was lucky to have a couple of really good uh, mentors uh, growing up, especially, you know, in, in football. I mean, my dad was a great role model, but, you know, the weightlifting and, and, the, and the training didn't really start heavily until, you know, high school football when, uh, you know, Coach, Coach Greg Manos at St. Joseph by the Sea, he was, he was very uh, formative in that, you know, he always harped on how the work you put in the weight room you know, put it in there and it, it will translate to, uh, to the field. And, you know, and over the four years of playing, you, you kind of see that, at least for some people, you obviously still need to be good at sporting movements and uh, athletic ability, which I think some people kind of forget about, you know, they just monsters in the weight room and they can't move. And, you know, football is not just about how much you squat or deadlift, but that's sort of, you know, a tangent here, but yeah, it comes from just seeing the results and then, and kind of really, really liking, the progress you make. And then you see, you know, you put in a little bit of effort, you, yo, look now I could bench more, I could squat more, I run faster, I feel better. And um, yeah, it, that it comes from that, just seeing the results and, and understanding that, you know, it's, it's kind of completely in your control. Obviously there's genetic factors in play and, but many, very few people ever reach their genetic limit, you know, without some enhancement and whatnot. So it, it's just a great feeling of, you know, you're making progress and, and you keep moving and uh, you reach towards a goal and you hopefully hit it and move on to the next one. All right, so you, you hit on a bunch of things there, and I, I want to start with your. Let's start with your high school football journey. So, when you came into St. Joseph by the by the Sea High School, what position were you, and and what string were you? Were you a first string guy? Uh, no, so I actually um, I picked up football just in high school. I, I was a baseball guy growing up. Uh, you know, I was a catcher, um, which I, I guess w was fortunate because my legs were always pretty strong. So, you know, I come into St. Joseph by the Sea you know, why not try something new? Uh, I watched on TV. Let's, let's see how it goes. Uh, freshman year, you know, I didn't know anything and it showed, I, I didn't play at all. I was pretty low on the totem pole and, uh, you know, I, I'd be lying if I didn't think about maybe just quitting right there and focus more on baseball. Cause like, you know, I, I was playing, I was, I was hitting really well and that was a little more lined up from like a comfort level. Um, but then, you know, sometimes things happen that are out of your control that, benefit you and and you know it's it's great to acknowledge that that you know we had a the head coach left for whatever reason um and a new regime got brought in and uh they kind of brought a whole new attitude and uh you know they, they it was almost like a fresh start and um you know they they then brought up a bunch of people from the jv team to the varsity that opened up some playing time for us guys who weren't exactly you know getting the repetitions uh at that lower level so you know blessing in disguise all of a sudden they pull up um two linemen so I was, I was an offensive guard then i was a defensive lineman the first year uh and then they moved me to offensive guard, guard and tackle and kind of learning the, the line there we, we ran a pretty uh, ill-suited offense uh for for our personnel back then but you know just it's still football so you're, you're learning basics and then you know they kicked up the guys uh to the, the varsity so now we got a ton of playing time and then you know that was great for building confidence experience and then by the next year I actually was the first string guard on the varsity uh, with a whole new offense that was way more tailored toward, you know, certain skill sets that I possess. Fortunately, I mean, you know, that's, that's sort of out of my control too. You, you know, coach, coach Tom Hench comes in and, and installs a brand new offense that just so happens to favor skill sets I possess. And, and, you know, that's, it's great, real fortunate, real great opportunity that I, you know, was lucky to take advantage of. And uh, I started every game my junior and senior year and, uh, yeah, that was the rest was history. <laughs> so, so let, let's just I want to put this in perspective for people that weren't there. You were a freshman. You're like a backup defensive lineman. 
you go to you're a, you're a sophomore, you are a backup offensive lineman in a we 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 had run like a, a veer, I'd say a veer spread offense at that point. Then they bring up guys ahead of you to the varsity to help fill some of the voids the varsity had, so you got some playing time. And then in your junior year, we go to under center, tight, double wing, and then you become a legitimate first string guard for two years in a row. Is that correct? That is correct. All right. So now you, you graduate high school, you go to Muhlenberg College. Uh, do you continue to play offensive? First of all, what did you weigh as a senior, uh, as an offensive guard? And what was your height? Um, I'd say senior year, well, actually junior year, I was probably heavier. So I was about like 235. I was about 5'10", 235 in my junior year. By the senior year, I slimmed down a bit. I want to be quicker on those pulls. So I was probably about 5'10", 220, 215 range uh, on a good day. I was, <laughs> was going to say it almost seems laughable to be that small to be an offensive guard in high school football, but I am laughing as you're saying it, so it's not almost laughable. But obviously, given the offense that we were in and the intensity that you had, uh, it, it certainly it was successful. We ran the, the heck out of the football, uh, for lack of a better word. I don't want to curse at all on, on this podcast, but you're right. This, this offense put you in a position, a lot of guys in a position where they could double team people, down block people, put them in a bad situation, and then given your tenacity and how strong you were in the weight room, it just worked. But now it's put you in college football where people are not running that offense. Did you get uh, recruited to play offensive guard at Muhlenberg? Uh, yeah. So basically, you know, I went to Muhlenberg College, uh, Division Three uh, school. I believe they're ranked sixth in the country right now. So they're doing great. Um, they've been doing great ever since I, I got there, really. Um, and uh, it, it's sort of weird. You know, y- you get recruited. You know, if you want to play, they'll have you. And I, I got recruited with the condition that I sort of put on more weight. And, uh, you know, that all sells well and good. Like I like eating, you know, so sure, I'll put on more weight. Um but, you know, it sort of got derailed real quick once I, uh, in the summer, going into my, my freshman year, I tore my labrum in my shoulder. Um, so that was uh, pretty unfortunate. Uh, <laughs> so that all kind of got derailed real quick. So instead of like thinking about, you know, I'm going to put on weight, lift, get in the weight room, you know, get big, get stronger. Now it's like, I got to get healthy, right? So your, your mindset kind of shifts a lot and, and things you sort of took for granted previously, you, you no longer have the luxury of caring about so where, where did you end up playing at that point so uh so the next I, I missed my freshman year completely I was rehabbing I, I took me literally 12 months before I could put my uh, a barbell behind my back so that injury was really really tough um and that was really my first major injury not not my last but my first um and um that, that put things in perspective. And, you know, that was one of the things that sort of was a blessing in, in disguise in some ways, because, you know, maybe really evaluate, you know, like diet exercise, you know, my, my, the way I was approaching the weight room, maybe I'm not invincible. You know, I can't just train every day and not, not have anything bad happen to me. But so the next year I come back, I was like two, I think I weighed in at 245, 250, but it was not a good, it was not a good 245. You know, I'm only 510 on, on a good day. So, you know, I was, I was pretty slow, but the offense we ran was more of a pro style. You know, I, we did some eye formation, some, you know, inside outside zone, that, that type of stuff. Um, and you know, I, I, it was a learning year, but like, again, I, I like sprained my foot and, and that, that didn't end well. So I sort of told myself that, you know, if I'm going to play, um, I, I should probably double down on what makes me who I am, which is my, my, I have really quick feet. I'm, I'm pretty athletic for my size. Uh, you know, I'm very intelligent football player. I'm never going to be the biggest guy. Uh, you know, I, I certainly could, could lift with the, the biggest guys because frankly a lot of offensive linemen in college are actually pretty weak believe it or not um because they don't work out or do anything they're just fat um so yeah so, and that's what separates the really good ones from the not really great ones is, is they're big str- big and strong and they put it all together but so the next year i slimmed down um my, and uh I came into the season probably about two two twenty again, but you know a lot better weight body body composition wise, and we ended up going undefeated. I was uh, I was actually on the second second team line there, so I actually got into a few games. Uh, my school's first ever undefeated um, undefeated season, first and only, and uh, you know that was a really great experience. But you know what, I I just knew that you know uh, with my size, I don't think I could have took physically another season like that. You know, you just get pounded upon. My line that year, the starters across the board. 270, 300, 330, 285, 330. Like these guys, and that's unusual for a Division three line. Like we were, we were undefeated and really good. So, you know, that sort of 
not the norm in my experience with like, you know, average division three linemen, but we were particularly good. Uh, so I, I went to the coach and, you know, I asked him if maybe I could play, uh, you know, another position and he was open to it. Um, he suggested tight end. I said, well, why don't I try, uh, you know, playing some defense, maybe get on some special teams, learn some linebacker. And he's like, yeah, you know, go for it. So I studied the playbook in hindsight, you know, he, he knew better than I did. Tight end was probably a, a more, more playing time for me there. Cause I, I'm a really good blocker, but that's sort of water onto the bridge at this point. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. And I, I do remember, uh, I think it was that summer that I sat in your garage with you. I, th- I think we went through your, your linebacker manual because in high school, I did not coach your position. I coached defense. I was defensive coordinator. And we sat down. I think we went cover to cover in that manual and then went over, had to read keys, had, had to you know, follow a pulling guard, had to read an offensive tackle if you're an outside linebacker. So I love the work that you had put in both mentally and physically to get yourself prepared for that. Yeah, you know, it was it was a really good learning experience because I, I honestly, through my football career, I never really focused at all on defense. And, you know, it was a lot of stuff that's like basic to anyone who's played before. But, you know, and, and honestly, it helped make me better uh, coach, you know, when I when I was coaching football, just kind of understanding the other side of the ball, you know, what they're looking for. And, uh, you know, it, it was it was a good experience. Uh, you know, I, I always wanted to kind of see what it was like over there from a more developed football brain, not, not freshman high school. And you know what, that, that is something that I, I say as a coach is that to be a good position coach or to be a good coordinator, you need to know how you're being attacked. So what, what helped me the most as a defensive coach was actually coaching on the other side of the ball, knowing how an offensive line blocks, knowing their scheme. So I agree with you a hundred percent. And I could see from the way that you came back and when you coached with us offensive line, having played linebacker, it definitely gave you a massive leg up knowing how defenses were going to try and attack what you were doing. So I got to, you hit, again, you hit on more stuff. You talked about uh, a torn labor and you also talked about not training every day. So I want to, I'm going to cut this into two parts. Part one is when you did start to get your equipment in your gym and I, and, and this, I don't know if you remember all this, but I remember I was starting to worry about you as I was training you because I felt like you were constantly doing stuff outside of what we were doing. It, it wasn't even just training. It was also playing multiple sports. And, and I was like, this guy might be overtraining and putting himself in a bad spot. So having said that, and then maybe this isn't even linked, but that was just a memory that I had in my head. And I feel like you've matured so much to the point that I almost feel that you're, you're kind of at an expert level in terms of strength and conditioning. So I want to touch upon, I'm going to take one step back. I want to talk about your injuries. And then I want to talk about how these injuries have changed the way you train. So can you just start rattling off a list of injuries that you've had, exclude the biggest one that I texted you about the other day. I want to leave that to the next story, but just you have the torn labrum. What else did you have in your football or baseball career? Yeah. So the, the, the shoulder might, well, I'm a righty, right. So that's sort of important to this, uh, my right shoulder labrum for those who aren't anatomy experts, a labrum is a piece of cartilage that provides stability to your ball and socket joints. So you have one in your shoulder, your hips, um, very important. You don't realize it's there until it tears. Um, <laughs> especially for a, yeah, especially for throwing athletes, it's very important. You know, I was a catcher, so having a strong arm throwing down the second base was always an important thing. So that was probably the worst one and an, an eye opener. Um, and then when I was playing football, I, I tore my hamstring really bad once. That was from doing too much. Uh, preparing for a, uh, we're, we're going to test our 40 in, in the summer. And I really wanted to get, get a good 40 on the board because I was switching the linebacker. So I was running all these extra sprints on the weekends. And then like the week before we we're supposed to test, I, I just popped it. And I was like, you know what? That's just me being dumb. Um, <laughs> that kind of led to, you know, I, I then because I was compensating, I pulled my groin and my hip flexor on, on the same leg. So it's like, it's all connected. Right. So once, once one thing goes, it's kind of downhill. Um, you know, ankle sprains, typical ankle sprains. Uh, uh, I had a uh, stress fracture fracture in my fifth metatarsal, uh, on my foot. That's probably from being gaining weight and being too heavy and running, you know, not being smart. Um, and then post football, I've actually had two hip surgeries, um, one on each hip for, you guessed it, a torn labrum. So, <laughs> unclear on how that happened. Uh, it turns out I have something called FAI, femoral acetabular impingement syndrome, which is apparently a very common thing for youth and uh, younger athletes, possibly due to over-specialization and or mechanical faults when you're growing. So basically, my hip bone, my femur, the head of my femur is not quite round enough. So it's a little squared off. So I have a little bone spur. So every time you squat, run, 
basically you're rubbing against your cartilage until it tears and then everything hurts. So I got one of them fixed in uh, 2015 and I got the other one fixed um, last November. And I'm very glad I did because my hips feel fine now, but I was living with a lot of pain and uh, note to self, don't ignore that pain. You know, that it, <laughs> it's probably something you should address and fix, you know, training through uh, pain is probably never, never a good idea. So that's, that's uh, the most of the, uh, you know, football and or uh, lifting related injuries, I think. Oh, yeah. Pec tear, not tear, but like strains and, you know, just general muscle, muscle tears. But so I, and you probably don't know this or remember this, but you, and not your injuries, just you are the reason that I had taken squatting out of the PowerPoints because you were a very big stickler on everybody's got to get to the same depth. And at least in my research, not everybody, and it's kind of, you kind of just alluded to it. Not everybody has the same bone structure, the same hip structure where they can't safely get to the same depth. And I said, you know what, I'm going to end up hurting someone in here. But you were such a big stickler on it because you were a technician. Like, hey, this guy didn't get to parallel or below parallel. And because of that, I said, you know what, this has to get out of here because someone's going to get hurt trying to reach this guy's, not even my standards, reach your standards. So that's why we pulled it out. Yeah, and that, that's actually a very good point. You know, uh, not everyone can squat with their feet straight. Not everyone can squat certain parallel. Like everyone's hip, hip joint has different shallowness, has different injuries. Um, but that's sort of the problem with just having any sort of standard because you have to have, you have to have a standard or else there's not, you know, you can't say someone's 500 pounds squat is equivalent to someone's two, like, right. Like, and it's sort of a balancing act. So yeah, I, I certainly would understand that viewpoint. You know, you don't want to, you know, it's rule number one in the weight room is don't, don't hurt people. Right. So, you know, that's, that's certainly a, a big concern. So ha- all these injuries, how did it change the way you train? I'll just leave it at that. How did it change the way you train having all these? Yeah. So that, that's, that's a, you know, a really insightful way of looking at it. So yeah, you have to change the way you train or Louis the way you approach training because a, no one likes being hurt. You know, it's sort of like you get depressed, you get unhappy. Um, you know, you feel like you're getting weak or fat, but like you kind of have to reframe, reframe your mindset of what, not what can't I do, but what can I do? You know? So if you have a hurt leg, chances are you don't have a hurt arm, you know, or you don't have a, you could go on a bike or do something. So as long as you're doing something uh, and being smart about, you know, training around injuries, that's number one is just really kind of developing uh, some go-to exercises to train around some things. And I'm not saying training through like, you know, Oh, I, I took off a hundred pounds off my squat and I'm just going to squat through it. No, if squatting hurts, maybe, you know, why don't we try some glute ham raises or something that's more hamstring dominated or hip thrust or something like that. But um, number two is just really kind of, you know, listening to your body, thinking about recovery. You know, I think now I do a lot more, um, not, not necessarily aerobic, uh, exercise, but like I do low intensity exercise to get my blood flowing a little bit more, you know, especially if I'm waking up five 30 in the morning and my garage is, uh, it gets pretty cold in here. So, you know, you have to be more smart about that and just, you know, warm up on mobility kind of takes more of a pressing, uh, you know, of, of your needs because, you know, you can't, you're not 20, even when I was 20, honestly, I don't think I could really just jump in and do it. You know, football, is, it's a great sport, but it puts a, a giant toll on your body physically. And, you know, you, you're just not the same, like if you just didn't do it. So like, you know, I, I feel like I have a lot more miles on my, my legs and my knees and that's fine. Like I, I love playing, but you have to be smart about it. You can't just say, I'm going to walk up and do, a, you know, sets of 20 with, with the back squat. Like what, why, what purpose does that serve? Like, who am I trying to impress here? Like, like let's, what, what, what are we going for goals? You know, I think goals get reevaluated too, as you age and you get injured, you know, maybe I'm not training to squat. I mean, deadlift 700 pounds. Maybe I'd be happy with a good solid rep, you know, at 400 with like a pause in the middle and feel like that's hard, but like, I'm not going to get hurt. So that, those type of things, little tweaks here and there, just being smart about how you approach it and, you know, just making sure you're not chew, uh, chewing off too much, uh, not biting off more than you could chew. And, and what I personally, I, I learned from you and stole from you was a lot of the, because when you were trying to recover you, you were doing a lot of rehab stuff and then to prevent injuries to yourself, you started doing a lot of prehab stuff on your, on your own in the gym while we're working out. And then I started to put a lot of prehab movements in, you know, for guys that train with us, you know, we do an A and a B. We'll do an A and a B. The A will be the main movement and the B will be some sort of prehab. And, and not only does it help guys to continue moving around the gym and not talk, but it also helps them prevent injuries. So at least that's what I saw from you. You got hurt a whole bunch of times. You learned from every one of those experiences. You brought it into the gym with us. And then I just stole it from you and incorporated it into the program. 
steal away. <laughs> <laughs> so you also mentioned the word uh, fat probably like two or three times in this conversation. Now, you said you were an overweight lineman, but I also remember there was a time that uh, you had a, a healthy six-pack going on. So how did you do that? How does a lineman go to – how do you go from being a lineman to a guy with a six-pack? A lot of discipline and hard work. Uh, there are no shortcuts. Uh, you know, just really kind of approaching, see what works for yourself, but really like reading up on, you know, what, what proper nutrition is because, frankly, you know, no one really goes through their lives – unless they're like studying to be nutritionist, really learning about, you know, what's a good protein, what's, you know, vegetables, good carbohydrates, when to eat, how much to eat. Uh, so like starting there was big and it was I'd say, like, a multi-year project in college, you know, after I, I had my labrum surgery and I kind of ballooned up to a really, really not healthy weight. Um, you know, you kind of reevaluate and, and you, you, teach, you learn, you see what works. And then the final, like say 20 or so pounds after I was done playing football, I was like, all right, once the season's over, we're going to go for this. And just really, really being diligent, weighing things, making sure that you're eating the exact quantities, you know, and, and it's no secret. Like you're going to have to eat a lot less than you're used to. Like, you know, there's really no magic pill, especially getting really, really lean. I mean, yeah, could you probably just go and be really good shape and just kind of going by hunger and, you know, just eating vegetables and protein? Yeah. But like to get that last 15, uh, dial down pretty low in the calorie count. So you're uh, saying there's no magic potion. Uh, there's no easy way to do this. You no. got to be disciplined. And there's a reason that I haven't done it since then, because, you know, it's one of those things that was, you got to weigh it. Like, is it that important or is being in really good shape? Okay. Or do you have to be like, I'm going to go, you know, for like a, a beach shoot, like th those things, are, you know, people see those magazines, like that's not how they look every day. Like it, th those are very specific time, time snapshots in time that people do. And yeah. Can anyone get there? Yes. But can anyone maintain there? Probably not. It's really hard. So habits come into play, but like to get really lean, it's not really happening. It's like, you know, just go really hard for a short period of time and hopefully you keep progressing. When you had that six pack, were you a single guy? Like, what was your life like at that? Yes. Uh, well, that's the thing. When you're when you're when you're dieting, you don't really have much of a social life, right? Because you know you, you can't really uh, you can't go to the bar, you can't go out to eat, right? So it's like that's another thing that people don't you know want to want to hear the truth about. Like, if you really really want to be super lean you you probably can't go out and eat pizza and have beers with your friends you, you can't go out and you know get a giant steak with like all you know all the fixings like so you know it's, it's ironic because you're like oh i look better i feel better but in order to get there you, you sort of have to be a little a little selfish and a little uh almost like a recluse right because you know everything outside of your house and your in your control area here is a temptation and you know i i like eating with my friends i like going out and having a good time so you can't really have it both ways when you're trying to get really lean, at least in my experience. And I'm sure this is really like depressing a lot of people out there, but th there's a lot of, a lot yeah, it's true. of what you say. And I just, I know that even me, uh, when I, when I still, I'm super strict, I'm about as strict as I personally can be. And it just, it puts a, it puts a damper on a situation when you go out with people and they're, they're drinking alcohol or they're having appetizers and you're saying, Nope, uh, I'll just have a uh, grilled chicken. I'll have a salad. You know, can I get a side order of a baked potato? It almost irritates yeah. the people that you're with. They get mad at you for doing it. Yeah, and a lot of people do get, you know, jealous of the fact that you're kind of working on yourself. And, you know, there, there's a lot of that in, like, society. It's like, oh, you know, have, have a cookie. Well, you know, no, I'm trying to do something here. But but to be full, full disclosure, you, you should not be, you know, doing that. Like, you know, yeah. you should be sort of in, in periods of spurts and most of your time should be sort of spent trying to maintain, right? So like you can't be in a constant state of trying to get ripped because your metabolism will burn out. You'll mentally burn out. And you'll probably end up binging on, you know, the next dozen bagels you see. And that's not good for anybody. So, yeah, I, I think it, as long as you frame it as this is a short period of time that I'm trying to accomplish something very specific and this is not going to be the suffering for the rest of my life. It's very achievable and doable, and maintenance isn't isn't as hard. All right, so we're gonna uh, change gears here for a second. Uh, we're gonna talk about eating a little bit. So, if you could go out to dinner with four of the best trainers that you have ever heard of, and I know you're you're a big student of this game, who would those four trainers be, and where would you go eat? <laughs> 
Well, <laughs> it's, it's funny you say that. So um, I don't know if you read the New York Times, uh, New York Times today, but the New York Times released a, a very scathing review of Peter Luger's. They gave it a zero, uh, zero out of five. So definitely not there. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a big steak guy, so I'd probably go to a steakhouse. Um, but who? Now, that, that's a really good question. So, you know, there's a lot of people in this industry that, you know, have a really good contributions that really have the spin on things. But, you know, when I was coming of age and really getting interested in, in this stuff, I'd say number one guy I always come back to is uh, Eric Cressy. He's a, a trainer in, uh, I guess he has a facility in Florida and Massachusetts. He's a baseball uh, baseball specialist guy. He works with a ton of pitchers and, you know, his thoughts on like functional anatomy and his, um, his, his viewpoint on, you know, how you have to treat certain populations um, differently depending on their demands. I- ideally, if you're a throwing athlete, you know, there's certain exercises that would be less ideal versus more ideal. There's certain demands like rotational power that would be more appropriate for a baseball player than say a football player. You know, I think, I think that's a really enlightened way of thinking. And um, I think more people should, should think through that lens, frankly. Uh, So he'd be number one, number two, you know, you can't, you can't beat like Joe DeFranco, you know, classic New Jersey, New York trainer guy. He, um, you know, he trains triple H, he trains a, a bunch of famous people. He's just, you know, that, that West side barbell, um, plan from like back in like 2004 when he was training Brian Cushing you know that was that was really cool it kind of showed how how fun um how fun training could be uh, especially the atmosphere he was able to foster in his uh, his first facility so that was big um number three I would say Kelly Sturette he's a he's a mobility and rehab guy he's really really uh an innovator in um in recovery and a couple of out of the box, uh, thinking, you know, he was the first guy to, you know, be the mobility wad and for, yep. mainly for CrossFit athletes, but you know what, that's applicable for anyone who's, who's got a barbell in their hands. Um, you know, he, he has a bunch of interesting techniques kind of melding physical therapy with just like self care, which is something that I, I don't think gets talked about. You know, everyone, when they, when they get a boo-boo, they, they got to run to the doctor and, and fit, well, actually you have the power to fix or at least, you know, make changes in, in your body. I think that's a great message. And um, I guess the fourth on um, this, you know, maybe not as well known, but uh, you know, I, I used to read uh teen nation testosterone nation a lot, you know, when, when all these guys are up and coming, but one of the smartest guys on there, his name was Christian Thibodeau. Uh, uh, that's <laughs> name, you know, I'm, I'm not exactly a French, uh, French Canadian, but uh, <laughs> you know, he uh, Really great, really great influence, you know, on his uh, training, training style. He, he loves big barbell lifts. Uh, he has a lot of interesting theories when it comes to rep schemes, conditioning. Um, you know, he used to play football, used to weight lift. Uh, now he does more CrossFit uh, coaching, physique tra- training. He does it all. And he is, it's a really, he's a really bright, bright guy when it comes to that stuff. So he's, he'd definitely be a really great guy to pick his brain. I think you picked a, an unbelievable four people. And, and at least in my mind, as you're talking, Christian Thibodeau first book I ever bought was the his black book of training secrets. Then you got Joe DeFranco. I was introduced to him for beating the NFL combine. And I just love what he does with culture. Then you're right about Sturette with I'll say recovery and mobility. And then you throw in Cressy, who's really all I hate he probably doesn't even want to hear the word functional training, but in terms of making a person do in a weight room what will help them become a good athlete and stay healthy is just, it's that's just an awesome combination of people that you picked. And I, I, I always loved that you were a student of the game, even while I was training you, because I was, I was feeding off you while you were in the gym, you'd bring new stuff back or you said, Hey, you should look at this guy. This guy's great. And I, you were the one that introduced me to Kelly Surrett, uh with the giant book, becoming a supple leopard. It's insane. It's great stuff. Yeah. That, that book is literally on my shelf in my gym. I pull it all the time. You know, if something's a little achy, you know, I, I pull it out and say, all right, let's, let's, let's do this in the warm up, thrown in there. So it's, it's really, really great reference book. So you, you had, uh, again, you're a student of the game. You had your own company called Mulligan fitness. Just to take me through it a little bit. What type of people did you train and where did your philosophies uh, resemble what we did in advanced training and where did they differ? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I was more of a generalist specializing in like boot camps and just general fitness. Um, you know, we, we did a lot of like outside stuff, uh, cause I didn't have like a, a you know, traditional gym to train out of. So, uh, what did I carry over? So I, I think structure and, uh, the importance of challenges. So, you know, I think being a naturally competitive person, um, it, 
I think a lot of people are motivated when they're pushed and have something to, to shoot for. But at the same time, though, you can't just kind of throw things to the wall and see what sticks. So structure meaning like we may have a, you know, a more lower body emphasis day, more upper body emphasis day, but we'll still try to make it, you know, fun and, and feels like it's not just monotonous. And I think that's important. I, I love what you do with that, the, the challenges and the, you know, the leaderboard. And, and that, I think that really gives uh, people something to, to shoot for. I'll bet you're probably attracting people that are naturally more in line with that, you know, more general population people, maybe not so much, but I like it. <laughs> so and that's a good because I remember there was a we, we usually attract the more hyper competitive people. And I do remember there was there's been people, not a lot, maybe a handful. And it was just one day this one guy said to me, I, I don't care about being competitive. And I was just thinking you were in the wrong spot. And and I felt badly because I definitely could have helped him from a physical standpoint. But it, this was definitely not the right place for him because he didn't want to come in the gym every day and get to some sort of challenge with somebody or compete on just about anything that was going on, which usually happened in our environment. Yeah. And, and you know, you can't, you can't be something for everybody, right? You, you got to have your niche and you got to, your ideal client or customer, you can't, it, it's impossible to be that broad and, and cast that wide net. So yeah, if it's not for, if that guy isn't, you know, suitable for that type of thing, he'll find somebody that, that is, and, and it's sort of how, how it should be. And, and now what we haven't mentioned yet is that you are the first and only person I ever let coach with me at advanced training. So can, can you take me through uh, what made you want to do that? Yeah. So, uh, well, first of all, I, I, I appreciate, you know, you, you letting me, it was a great experience. Um, so why did I want to do that? So number one, you know, you've been a huge influence on my training philosophy, my, my desire to even train period, you know, when we were getting ready for college, you know, that's really when I kind of saw what was possible from a physical development standpoint. And that, that's stuck to me even to this day. I, I do s- s- a lot of the same stuff still, you know, as my body <laughs> allows. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I always wanted to know like, you know, the why and, and the, the reasoning behind certain programming decisions or, or why, you know, we program certain stuff on this day, what, what your, what your take behind certain lifts and, you know, just kind of picking the brain from somebody who clearly knows a lot about training was, was number one. But number two, you know, it's, it's a great atmosphere, uh, advanced training. It's, it's something that, you know, as somebody who at that point was, I guess you would call in the Joe DeFranco sense, a, a washed up meathead, right? Competitive uh, football. Uh, you know, I'm just kind of an adult now, right? So you kind of miss the, the, uh, the atmosphere and the competitive nature of playing sports. And that's something that, you know, I think that's sort of – not not a bit of a tangent here, but I think that's sort of why so many people get into CrossFit because you know it, it sort of mimics like a team sport almost, and you feel like you're you're part of something. But advanced training has a similar vibe that everyone is, you know, competing, fighting for reps, and, and that's not something you get at the regular twenty four hour fitness. And you know, for me, it was a, a big deal because at the time of advanced training, I didn't trust anyone making sure I was always worried that somebody was going to get hurt because guys were so hyper competitive. And I was always so concerned that if I brought somebody else in, that they would almost push this thing over the top. Cause with, with these guys, you never really had to push them to work hard. You always had to be like, stop, like you're going to hurt yourself or somebody else. So for me though, you were a guy that I legitimately trusted because of a, your passion for what you were doing and B your, that, that thirst for knowledge. And you really did teach me a lot as you were a as you were an athlete trained with me but b when you came back it was it was a nice compliment to the way my mind was working to have you come in especially with the prehab stuff and clearly you you were such a tactician that you figured out ways to manipulate your own body to get i'd say almost every ounce of potential that you could out of it so what i want to touch on right now which links to that is that you deadlifted 545 pounds what did you weigh at that point um, probably anywhere between 195 and 205, give or take. That's usually my, my normal sitting range. Now and it's probably about 205 to 210. But <laughs> I mean, that, that, and that's raw. There's no gloves. There's no belt. There was, I don't even think there was chalk. Uh, we just went in and you just you ripped it. Now, was that, in your mind, is that your biggest accomplishment inside of advanced training? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that was something that, you know, you sort of do like a – an analysis on what you're good at and what you're not good at, like what you can really kind of 
push, right? And, and you know, in my mind, it always was the deadlift because I, I'm sort of physically suited for it. I have a shorter torso. I have pretty long arms for my, my, my stature. So, you know what, I, I thought to myself, like, let's, let's try to get as many plates on there as possible and see what we could do. So, you know, that was always the, the, the goal is see, you know, capability-wise, you know, how much I could throw at it. The X factor is, now I'm not sure if you still, you know, do this, but um, the double overhand grip requirement is, uh, is tough, right, for most people. <laughs> You know, you see it in like a powerlifting meet. Most people do a mixed grip. It allows a little more stability on the bar. And I've actually lifted um, my, my all-time max with a mixed grip. This is post-advanced training. Um, it was 585, and I only went there because I, we ran out of room on the bumper plates. Um, so I think I had six. I would have went for six, but um, that's probably it. But, yeah, you know, you just know what you're capable of and, and just trying to push it. And I think that's part of the, what makes advanced training su- such a – interesting thing is you know you have something to shoot for and there was a record and i was like you know what i'm i'm gonna break it and no one's touched it so i'm pretty happy about that so j- just so you know i gotta let other people know my rule at advanced training even in coaching high school was we had to go with a that double overhand grip that uh that that pronated grip without not using a mixed grip part of it was because i, I had always said hey if it's if it's fourth and one uh i don't care about your how much you deadlifted. I want to know if you have enough grip strength to be able to grab that guy at the goal line. The other part of it is just, you know, you learn a little more. There is, if you're not training it right, there is potential. If you're not alternating hands, if you don't have perfect form, there is a little bit of a potential to put some strain on your bicep doing it. So it, our, our advanced training rules were you got to go double overhand. Uh, but the, the other part of this that I wanted to talk about with that 545 deadlift, and I don't know if you remember this, you hit that number and then, for like a few months after that and training you were getting rocked by weights i'd say easily 100 pounds less than that so did you burn out a little bit after you i'm sorry it was actually your first test you i think you hit 525 sorry 520 on the original test you came back you got a little burnt i don't know if you remember all this you were probably training in like the mid to to low 300s and then you recovered and that's when you put another 25 pounds on your deadlift test yeah 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 i, I you know I, I do remember this I, I do think that's part of it I, I do think you know deadlifting is such a neurally taxing exercise and, and you know recovery is a little bit tricky especially you know what other stressors you have in your life what's work like what's home like that you know that's sort of why you really shouldn't <laughs> you shouldn't hex at your deadlift all that often <laughs> um, but yeah you know it takes a lot out of you and that, that's it's absolutely part of it i i do think that that has something to do with it and I just I think as I train a guy, as we test out on deadlift, you constantly and you were there with me. You did it as a trainer, you did it as a coach, you did it as an as an athlete. Guys are testing out on deadlift, and let's just say it's January. It's one of your first tests. They are arguing with you nonstop. Give me one more try. Give me one more try. And you might be on like your tenth set of deadlift. And at a certain point, it's like, look, we gotta we gotta stop doing this because while you may hit a, de- a deadlift max right now in January, you may screw yourself up for February and March by completely and to- totally burning out. But let's leave a little bit in the tank so you can walk for the next two months. But it's, yeah. hard, it's hard for a high school kid or a college kid to get that. Absolutely. They, they want to beat it day one. And you know what? I, I don't have numbers on this. I, I'd probably love if we had a data set rich enough for uh, anal- analyzing, but I, I'd love to know how many people have actually hit a deadlift after missing twice, right? Like, miss once maybe was a grip slip miss twice you're done just just live the fight another day like the risk of injury versus the fatigue i mean it's just not not very likely it's not a very smart thing to do so two misses for me is about my limit and you know what we'll we'll either drop down the weight or just call it a day because that that left you know it's it's very simple to leave it back you know pop a hamstring like that's it's it's a tough exercise so you got to be smart about it and I'd also equate that to broad jump, which I'd say you also had a very good broad jump for your your height, your weight. You had a 118-inch broad jump. I think once a guy – my rule is if he goes two to three reps in a row where he has not increased, we shut it down. And that's something where guys just – they just want to keep going, not realizing how taxing a broad jump could be on their body. Yeah, yeah I think that's a great way of looking at it. And, uh, you know, as a trainer, you have to have your, your athlete's best interest at heart. And yeah, they really, you know, it's, it's all ego. They, they just want to get it and feel like they did it. But like, look, you know, it's, we're playing a long game here. You hit it now. And then, you know, you tweak your hamstring and you can't train for the next four weeks. Like, was that really a smart thing to do? Probably not. Right. So it's cost benefit. So you also hit on something. And this is what I loved about you is that you were openly admitting saying, Hey, I'm pretty good at deadlift because biomechanically, it suits me that I have long arms, but 
it kind of hurts me a lot on things like pull-ups and bench press. So in your mind, did, did you see the, the beauty of what I was trying to do with the PowerPoints to make it an equal playing field for people? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's sort of the, the give and take with that. But, you know, that I think that's an undercovered portion of like lifting and, and you know, just general leverages. Like it, it may not be, you know, obvious when you see somebody lift like, you know, 800 pounds on their back in the Olympics, you're like, whoa, well, you look at him, he has a really long torso. He has, you know, short, short uh, leg, leg lengths. And it's like, it, it just literally is a lot easier for that person to lift those weights. So yeah, it, if you want to get a rounded athlete score and try to, you know, it's not perfect. Nothing's been perfect. You know, somebody might have really light, you know, body weight means they're going to pull ups and really long, you know, arms, they're going to deadlift or whatever. But like, you know, I, I appreciate the, the rationale of trying to average it out because, you know, if you're just doing bench squat deadlift or, you know, bench squat power clean or something, then, you know, you're kind of almost favoring, you know, the heavier guys and more stout guys, which I happen to be one of them. So <laughs> I'm not to play, but, you know, but the lighter guys, the more, you know, the, the lankier guys, maybe the more skilled guys position in, in, in football, you know, they're, they're going to get kind of, kind of hurt by that. So the pull-ups sort of the, the equalizer and then, you know, it's, it's, it's a great exercise that, uh, you know, I wish I could do more of. <laughs> And, and it makes it even more impressive. You know, you're in that top 10. You know, you guys are, are pretty good at just about everything. It's not like you just came in and deadlifted 545 and bench pressed 185. You were in the 320s. You got 26 pull-ups. Uh, those guys in that top 10 are they're in our, our advanced training world, and, uh, and maybe not in the elite of the elite world, but in our world, they're, they're freaks in our gym. So tip my hat to you for that. So what, what's your biggest accomplishment outside of advanced training when it comes to lifting? Yeah. So, um, after advanced training, I got really into, uh, weightlifting, Olympic weightlifting, so like snatching and cleaning. And, um, you know, that's just something that we always used to do in like college, like, like power cleans, but like no one ever taught you how to do it really well, or, um, you know, technique wasn't exactly emphasized. And then I kind of opened my mind that there actually is you know real technique in this and then i, I literally self-taught myself i self-taught myself how to snatch and clean clean work and i ended up my, my personal best on the snatch now these aren't like you know world breaking but for me as a later getting into it you know i didn't start when i was 12 uh my personal best on the snatch is 230 235 pounds and uh clean clean 315 clean and jerk 305 so um they're pretty respectable i think but you know obviously people do more but for me i self-taught at like 26 years old um you know mobility from an, an ex-football career uh yeah i'm pretty proud of those numbers and what, what was the guy uh the, the research that you did was it gary cook what was the guy's name um i'm not i'm not really remembering i i, cause I remember you had turned me on to some of his dvds which were very good and i just i'll know from from our like, when i was in college my strength coach was a legit Olympic weightlifter. That's what he did. So, and we spent a lot of time on. Then oh, I, oh, oh, I think you may mean Glenn Penlay, who actually just recently died uh, from like cancer or something. But yeah, he's a pretty. Uh, he has some great videos on YouTube, uh, teaching the progressions, snatch clean, yeah, you know, really like three part, three part lifts, and and uh, yeah, he trained a bunch of really good American lifters. And I actually went to a seminar of his, although he, he actually didn't go because he just had a stroke, but his teammates uh, were there to teach. And it was really, really great hands-on uh, work on that. And I'd say that even my weight, my strength coach in college, he didn't teach us to that Olympic level, probably because we didn't have the time to do it. And then with you guys, I certainly didn't teach it to that level because we didn't have the time to do it, nor did I even learn it from my strength coach how to actually perfect all those techniques. So you, you are right. It is it is a specialty craft that you need to dedicate yourself to, especially to hit the numbers that you were hitting. Yeah, and you know what, though? that That's the type of lift. It's it's also, you know, comes down to cost-benefit. Like, you know, if you have a summer with a, an athlete, are you really going to spend half of it teaching them with a, with a barbell, like 45-pound barbell, how to, like, lift? No, you're going to do jumps and throws and things that are easier to grasp. So, you know, that's that's something that I think too many people pigeonhole in for, like, general athletic training. Like, yeah, they're fun and they look cool, and I love them, but, like, doesn't mean everyone should be doing them. So. So you hit on something. Uh, I want to tell the end of the story because you just hit on it now, but related to you. So uh, you wake up one morning. I think you're in, in bed uh, after a nice night's sleep, and you can't move half your body. So what 
what's going through your mind? So I'll paint this picture again for people. Rob Mulligan in bed, wakes up, can't move half his body. So what, what's going through your head? Well, I thought, you know, sometimes you like lean on your body uh, for too long. You get like pins and needles that maybe, you know, it's like something uh, I fell asleep, like uh, sitting on my hand or something. thought that was number one, what was going on. And then number two, I thought maybe I like tweak my neck, you know, playing football. Sometimes you get like a, a bit of a, a tweak, you know, we usually kind of shake it out, gets back together. But that, that actually wasn't what it was. <laughs> what, what was it? So I actually was in the middle of having a, a uh, stroke, believe it or not. So that was uh, fun uh, two months before my, my wedding. Um, but uh, I'm fine now. So that's good. So I'm still still uh, able to walk. But yeah, I mean, I was really close to being, you know, paralyzed or even dead. Uh, you know, that's it's like a one in a million thing. But um, yeah, it was scary. So if you can't move half your body, how, how do you get help? How do you call for help? What would you do? Uh, well, I, I, luckily my fiance was there, so she was able to kind of see something was wrong. Um, and, uh, she called the ambulance. So the ambulance came and, uh, they were very bad at getting me into the ambulance. They were like trying to get me to walk it off. It was, it was really poor reflection of that hospital, frankly, but, uh, <laughs> they were trying to get you to walk off a stroke. Swear to God, they tried to get me to walk into the ambulance like, on my own power. And I almost did. I was like stumbling, like, cause you know, thankfully, like I'm pretty strong. So I was basically like one leg hopping into the, <laughs> into the ambulance. But, uh, yeah. Uh, thankfully when I got to the hospital, they, they took a little bit better care of me. Now, am I correct in saying that these numbers that you talked about before, uh, the, these are all post stroke? Um, so I've come very close to those numbers post stroke. Uh, those are actually pr- like literally like the, a month before I hit my personal best, but I've hit a three Oh, hit a three Oh five clean after I've hit my deadlift. My five eighty five is actually post stroke and, uh, I've snatched two twenty five um, post stroke. So close enough. So w- what did recovery look like? It, it, like, did you go to rehab in the hospital? Was this uh, again, a uh, Rob Mulligan, do some research and, and rehab yourself. How'd you so- get back to form? So, uh, just for the record, I, we, we believe it was, uh, through a chiropractic manipulation. Uh, so that, that's not, not, that's not neither here nor there. You could Google that. Apparently it's a lot more common than people realize, um, which is terrifying, but, um, so actually I, I sort of just stayed at the hospital for a few days and, um, I got better. <laughs> uh, like my feeling came back. I was able to move up it, you know, not as quick or as smooth. My like face was, uh, more functional my speech came back and uh frankly i, I it just kind of came back on its own and then i slowly just started training again you know as, as i felt comfortable I, I got a ton of tests obviously you know checking up on like you know heart uh lung brain all that stuff you know going to a bunch of specialists but um you know once they gave me the clear uh i just started going again lifting working out and uh since then i've run a half marathon a full marathon um yeah and still lifting so it's all good. <laughs> so what what should they Google again? Because I remember after it happened to you, you told me to Google it, but I, just in case people want to look. So it up. the uh, the it's a carotid artery dissection. Um, so one of your arteries in your neck. It's uh, basically what happens is with a sort of a violent twist of uh, uh, of your neck, you could possibly, I guess, part of your artery gets like flaked a little and it gets blocked. Like it just sort of like a sliver of it kind of just comes off because it hit a bone or something. So, and it basically then blocks your, uh, your, your flow of blood to your brain, which is obviously very bad. Uh, and the longer it's blocked, the more likely you're going to be brain damaged permanently or even die. So that's, um, yeah, it's, it's not great, <laughs> not a great thing to happen, but you know what it's, um, you know, sometimes you get lucky, sometimes you get unlucky. So I, I kind of look at it as I was unlucky to get it, but I was lucky that I survived it so well. So, you know, it's, it's sometimes you just, it's better to be lucky than really good sometimes. Well, I just I can I love that you continue, you know, the injuries that you had, uh the 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 not starting on offense, a new head coach, all of these things that most people would say, Oh man, why me? Why this happened to me? You're a guy that seems to keep thinking, Well, this happened for me and, and you take the best out of every situation, which is great. I love it. So uh are you ready for some uh rapid fire questions? Sure. All right. So uh when you think of advanced training, what is the one word that pops into your head? Accountability. Awesome. Why is it accountability? 
Well, you're, you're accountable to the people you train with. You got to show up on time. You got to put the work in. And, um, you know, if you don't, I, I think you're going to disappoint some people. So I think that's, that's really important, when, especially when you're younger, a little less experienced in, in the whole, you know, training world. It, it's important to have somebody there to, to hold you accountable. Make sure you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. And I, I like that you said not accountability to me. To, to coach Mahoney, but accountability to the other guys that you're training with. I feel like that's always been the best thing is getting other guys around you to, to want you to be there, to force you to be there. Okay. Next question. Uh, what is the worst training advice you've ever gotten in your life? So I think we hit on this a little bit before, but you know, that there's like a one size fits all with exercise technique. You know, there's just so much variance, just anatomical training history, injuries, that, you know, we all can't do the things that someone else can because your life is very unique and your injury histories, you know, you have things that hurt that they don't and you just got to be smart. And that's where, you know, coaching comes in. You, you have to tailor things to the, the person and uh, to get the most out of them. So what what's the worst advice you have ever given? Um, I would say, you know, push through pain, I guess, in some ways, I, I guess – you know, there, there's certainly a difference between, I guess, the old adage is being hurt or being injured. Uh, and I guess when it when it comes to training, you know, neither of those things really should, should apply. But, you know, discomfort is okay, but pain, um, you know, it, it's uh, it's not something you should really be dealing with on a daily basis. You might want to get your stuff fixed and, uh, you know, reevaluate what you're doing. But, you know, I understand, though, from a, from a younger – you know, when you're younger, you may not be smart enough or experienced enough to really know the difference. So – you know, it, it kind of comes with experience, but don't, don't push through pain. <laughs> <laughs> now you used to j- train with the general population, the gen pop, as they call it in, uh, in prison, but now you have your own uh, gym in your house. But when you were training with the general population, what was your number one pet peeve of other people in the gym? Well, number one, just waiting for, um, you know, equipment to come up primarily the squat rack because very rarely was it used to actually squat and or do anything heavy. Um, and you see some weird stuff, especially in like Staten Island YMCA. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Like I, it's, I, I'm nightmares from training at that place, frankly. Um, you have like 15 year old kids trying to deadlift like with their backs looking like a U and it's just hideous. But yeah, I, I think just the, the, the mis the general misuse of equipment and lack of, you know, common etic- etiquette is the number one thing I, I don't miss. And I, I hate. <laughs> All right. Two, two more questions for you. Uh, you're going into a tag team challenge. First of all, I got to take a backtrack here. For all of your success in advanced training, your challenge numbers are not good. You, you really didn't – I'd say you didn't seem like you were in that many competitions, to be honest. So I, I don't know if you had no interest in the challenge. I mean you, you dominated uh, the last tough man you were in. You, you, you're on the top eight all time. What made you – not do as many challenges as the people in the, the group with you? Uh, I think it just comes down to, you know, specificity is king. And a lot of those things, you know, I'm just not very good at naturally. So like in order to get really good at something personally, I need to really focus on it and train. And if that wasn't a main aspect, like a, a grip, a barbell hold or something like, yeah, I'm okay at it. But like, unless I start doing barbell holds for time every day, you know, I, I'm not going to be better than somebody who's naturally better at, at it than me so it just comes down to you know I'm, I'm good at what i'm good at and the things i don't have to work on so like, i just you know it's something that um it's always you have to have in the back of your mind of your weaknesses and things you want to bring up does sean mulligan hold it over you that he's the 2010 challenge champ or no i haven't heard of that in a while but i'm sure now it's gonna be triggered <laughs> it, will, it will come out this will be a thanksgiving conversation yes speaking of thanksgiving there's a lot of pressure on you and your brother to be there so you were on my team last time, so make this magic happen, Mr. Mulligan. I'll see, I'll see what I could do. <laughs> All right, b- back to my original question. It's tag team challenge. You and one other person. Who would you pick to be your your partner? Oh, that's easy. It's got to be my brother. We uh, we work pretty well together, so it's it's a no brainer. Awesome. And who would you want to go head to head with? Like, what would be your greatest competition? Well, if I want to win, none of the guys, none of the guys had me on the leaderboard. But um, I guess from a you know competitive standpoint, I mean, some of the guys that I've I've come in training, I mean, Clohesse, uh, Sarno, Ryan Smith, Billy Blanco are all all really good at you know a, a wide range of things that would be you know maybe formidable. Awesome. Well, we we can make a lot of that happen this Thanksgiving, Rob Mulligan. 
we can make a lot of that happen. <laughs> For those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, we are holding our, uh, I'll say, our second annual Thanksgiving Tough Man. I will be posting something on Instagram and sending an email out soon. But we're, we're trying to get all of the, the washed-up meatheads, as Mr. Mulligan said, back and at it to, to, get, to get this thing rolling. And I am right now, again, trying to recruit him and Sean to come back and be a part of this thing. But I will, I will go back to my, my last question for you. We're uh, a little bit over an hour now. And this is my selfish question that I ask everybody. Uh, what is there? Is there one life lesson that you can give me on how to simplify my life inside or outside of the gym or remove clutter? Uh, clutter? That is a, a great question. And I think that's one of life's greatest mysteries. Um, I will say, I think something that my wife and I have been doing, um, you know, when you have a house, you, you sort of accumulate things just sort of out of nowhere, you know? So what we've been doing is sort of picking each week. We have a rotating calendar of rooms that we'll like attack and uh, we'll go in, we'll clean, we'll throw things out that we haven't been getting around to. And it's just, it's an easy way to just kind of stay on top of things, just kind of make it, I think just in general, I mean, obviously that's very specific, but calendar time, like schedule time to do certain things that you want to be doing and do it and and you know clutter it might just be like a re-evaluation spring cleaning type thing i mean i guess there's a reason that you know spring cleaning is a is a thing um that every now and then people do need to kind of reevaluate what they're doing and throw some things out and even if it's just like skill set wise like you'll do a self-evaluation and say you know what i need to get better at this how am i going to do it make a plan and, and execute so that's what i would say how do you do you guys you're both in the same room when you're making this, this cleanup or are you guys in two different rooms? Yeah, no, it's where two people are focused on one room. So, uh, yeah. And we, you know, get garbage bags out and <laughs> tidy up. So how do you emotionally handle getting rid of stuff? I don't like getting rid of stuff, but you know, I, I sort of, I've come, I've gotten better at it. I think uh, the older I get, I, I kind of do a, an, a calculation in my head you know have i used this thing in the last say year or so will i plan on using this thing in the last year or so have i gotten something that has replaced this thing you know and if the answer is yes to any of those it's it's got to go and you just kind of got to throw it out but sometimes that's easier said than done so (laughs) is it easier doing it with mrs mulligan or without mrs mulligan oh with because she'll hold she'll hold me accountable like i i can't just kind of be like no i'm I'm keeping this like no really like yeah you're right it's it's going in the trash is she better at throwing out your stuff or her stuff um she's good at throwing down stuff in general i guess you know she uh she she likes to be neat and tidy so I, i guess that's sort of you have to be that way you can't be as sentimental when it comes to random crap around your house so you got it's got to throw it throw it out and uh, again people on the line i'm not trying to pry too much into rob mulligan's personal life but i am trying to get out or dissect you know is it better to have a support system as you're throwing out stuff or does it make it worse but it sounds like in your world it, it is better someone can hold you it, accountable. it's better it's better yeah i i think so accountability is is, is good in, in basically all all facets of life i've, I've noticed and, and that other person probably does have have as much attachment to like your uh, third grade uh, participation soccer trophy. Just just throw that out, man. It's taking up room on the shelf. Well, that, that's what my parents' house is for. <laughs> <laughs> you leave that stuff there and you just forget about it. <laughs> well, listen, man, awesome, awesome interview. You have a very interesting life, and it's, it's made you the great trainer and great, I'd say, uh, competitor that, you, that you've been. So uh, this has been a good interview. I, I really hope that people have listened to a lot of the messages that you had. I'd say for me, it's learning from, from the bad, embracing that stuff and becoming better at it. And also, I, I really think that you've grown from all of that into an excellent coach and a guy who's accomplished a, a hell of a lot inside the gym and outside of it. So, Rob, awesome interview, man. I will see you Thanksgiving morning, whether you like it or not. Thank you, Coach. Have a good night. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. All right. See you.